Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. Welcome to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Think Radio, where each week we talk to a musician, artist, author, or other creative contributing to the arts in Mississippi. On today's show, we're talking about the 2021 Mississippi Invitational, a biennial showcase of 42 visual artists from across the state. You can check out the show on view now until November 7th at the Mississippi Museum of Art. We have two guests on today's show, the guest curator of the Invitational, Danielle Burns Wilson, as well as this year's winner of the Jane Crater Hyatt Artist Fellowship, Coulter Fussell, who received support for the development and creation of her work over a two-year period. Coulter is a quilter and textile artist living in Water Valley, Mississippi. So, Coulter, as um, someone who works in textiles, um, you know, in your work as a quilter, as as an art form, I'm curious what people's reaction is when they either find out that you're a quilter or you see your work amongst um, other visual artists and maybe are surprised. Well, yeah, I think that that's sort of uh, part of the whole thing. What what I am aiming to do is to um, uplift you know, the appreciation of craft among people who are not necessarily trained craftspeople. And, um, and I, I want them to see sort of the beauty and the sophistication that craft is, uh, you know, and I think sometimes putting it in another setting besides, you know, a domestic environment, uh, can really have people see that. And, you know, I also think it's not just, surprise I think a lot of times when people see craft in like a more what would be typically considered sophisticated you know artistic realm they uh they make a connection you know these are materials and um you know craft ways that they probably grew up with in their life in their homes and so you know sometimes when a painting can seem sort of um untouchable or foreign, you know, if you see a quilt in a gallery, you suddenly feel very familiar to it, you know? So I think that the, um, reactions people can have to seeing, um, like craft textiles specifically in a gallery, uh, among paintings or sculptures or whatever can really run the gamut. It can go, you know, all across the board. And I think that's one of the reasons I find such uh, like, you know, our artistic fulfillment in working in craft in that sort of realm, you know, it's, it's really, uh, it's really versatile and like, uh, how you can connect to somebody either intellectually or emotionally or whatever. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So let's talk for just a bit about, you know, the multi-generational quilters that came before you and your family. I know you grew up in Columbus, Georgia, which is a textile manufacturing town, and your mother taught you how to quilt. So I'm curious uh, to hear about your other family members and just others that inspired you and how you weave their experiences um, and what you've learned from them into your work. Well, yeah, my mom taught me how to quilt really through osmosis. There was never until, you know, later when I was 19 or 20, there was never growing up like a sit-down lesson. 
um, there, it was really, I just watched it in a sort of like with disinterest, you know, it was like something she was doing in the background. And I just sort of, you know, naturally figured out over the course of my childhood, what exactly it was she was doing in what order and how that all came together to make a quilt. I was always very like in awe of it and certainly, um, respectful, respectful of it. And, um, it's sort of artistic integrity and complication, but I was never like sat down and like told this is how you make a quilt. And I think, you know, um, I'm lucky in that sense because of my age, there's lots of women older than me, uh, for generations and generations who were not only sat down and taught how to make a quilt, but often made to do this stuff, like made to sew, uh, many times I'm sure against their will, they would much rather be, doing other things. And so I was, you know, sort of lucky in that for me it wound up being a choice. And, you know, so in that sense, the experience of all the other women in my family that go back generations and generations, all of that, that's how sort of, uh, working a traditional craft works. Like it's sort of a generational, like collective source of knowledge that eventually comes to you down the line. So, you know, every single stitch I take is a stitch taken because all the women in my family for years and years and generations back until, you know, we don't know, have been taking those same stitches. So, you know, it's all encompassing in that way. You know, um, you mentioned how so much of the uh, materials that you use are donated or um, given to you in some way or make their way uh, magically to your doorstep um, in one way or another. Um, yeah, people are always mailing me stuff. Now, you know, often, you know, it'll be other women who work in craft and um, they're mailing me old scraps that they wouldn't necessarily use in their work. But sometimes it's just people who have like, you know, an old stash of fabric that belonged to their great aunt or whatever. But you know, what typically happens with me is that I get the fabric that nobody else wants, you know, <laughs> because I don't care how nice it is. I don't care where it came from. I don't care any of, like, I don't care what weight it is or how expensive it is or whatever, or, you know, if it's blemished or not. I only care that the person thought to send it to me, you know. Uh, the, the notion that somebody... Uh, thought I'm going to extend the life of this old piece of fabric is, is, is what I'm really collecting, you know? And, um, so I often wind up with fabric that nobody would trade, <laughs> you know, <laughs> nobody wants to make a trade with me. So I, I'm the end of the line. I'm like one step before the garbage can, you know? And so those are, those are the materials I work with. Do you find yourself creating, uh, backstories to certain materials that you have no idea where they came from? Well, I actually don't have to create those stories. Often those stories are sort of apparent in the fabric. Um, you know, I might not know exactly like specifically where a thing, where a piece of fabric came from or like exactly what the story is, but you can tell when something's been like, you know, through a flood, for instance, or, um, when something's been in a window for like 60 years in, uh, when a pair of pants are like worn out in the wallet area from somebody sliding a wallet in and out of their back pocket over and over and over and over again for decades, you know. So a lot of these stories, I don't have to make them up. They, they come already in the fabric, you know. 
And as you kind of find inspiration for new pieces, is some of that drawn by this, um, I guess you could say obvious backstory of these pieces? Do you, is that part of how you approach kind of your next piece, looking at the pieces, seeing how they speak to you? Or are you exploring different themes and then grabbing what makes sense to you for those particular outcomes? Yeah, usually my pieces start with a personal story, some sort of like, um, and some sort of personal notion from like a, a very like hyper personal experience. Uh, and, and then that is also, I transfer that sort of onto a piece or to a fabric. I'm like this piece of fabric, you know, can be the beginning of a piece I'm going to make about some sort of like power play or some sort of issue about forces and stuff. And so, but and so then the, you know, the, the piece comes together from that. I'm pulling fabrics that I think probably relate to that in some sort of way. And um, whether that be like the fabric is very worn in this one place or there's a rip here, or I can see that the threads are coming out in this one spot. So it looks like it's really been pulled, you know. And, um, you know, so I sort of build it that way and that I'm taking, you know, these sort of presumed old stories and like mixing it with my story. Um, and it becomes sort of one, one whole story because really I feel like what you find is that, um, uh, there's no new experiences. We've all, we're all having the same experiences and, uh, they're, they're experienced over and over again. And so, you know, you can find connection there. Well, I want to take a minute and read uh, part of your artist statement, and then I want to kind of ask you a little bit more about it, because I think that it, it ties into what we're talking about here. So part of your artist statement says that your quilts experiment with the push and pull between the craft's functionality and form while addressing truths of poverty, disparity of luck, the relationship between force and power, and notions of faux romanticism and false nostalgia. Uh, you know, you put this idea forth as woman versus machine and how the work translates to sign and touch. So I'm interested to see how addressing these themes in your work looks like. How would you describe that? Um, obviously, this is um, this radio show is, you know, you're hearing it, right? So it's hard to um, to see the kind of work that you're doing if people are not familiar with your work. Can you talk to me a little bit about how you use textiles to really push forth some of the things you describe in your artist statement? Well, just for instance, one of those things like uh, woman versus machine. Um, I, I did a series of moving machines, you know, in quotes, we're calling them machines is moving uh, mechanical sculptures. But the way I built them was traditional hand sewing methods. So they were sewn with a uh, needle and thread. There was batting, you know, and, and it, they were quilts, but they also moved and you had to move them mechanically with your hand. And, um, but they were machines. And so, you know, it was sort of a commentary on like industrialization versus, um, you know, traditional handworking craft and, um, how that sort of has flip flop and interplayed and how one, uh, sort of uh, affects the other. And um, I just I don't know, thought it would be sort of an interesting, like, you know, mind exercise to think about machines that were made uh, in the traditional methods that they replaced, you know. 
Right. That makes a lot of sense. And, and you know, your, your work, uh, I hate to compare, uh, different types of art, but your work has a painterly abstractionism quality to, to some of them. And I'm wondering how this work could be compared to contemporary painting or what you, if you draw any, uh, parallels between the two. Yeah, well, you know, I grew up wanting to be a painter, and I spent a good time painting. Uh, I grew, I was raised in a museum environment. My father was a museum curator for many years when I was young, and I, um, an arts museum curator. And I uh, grew up around a lot of artists and painters, and so, you know, uh, growing up, uh, craft and, you know, what people would say were finer arts existed simultaneously side by side, as sort of as one and equal. And um, so, uh, you know, my favorite artists are painters. That That's when I am composing a piece, I'm thinking about, you know, traditional quilting patterns. I'm thinking about, you know, uh, fabric construction and how it's all going to go together. And I'm also thinking about paintings, you know. Um, I'm thinking about uh, how would how would the light come through the window in the Vermeer painting or whatever. It's exactly how the light, source in my quilt would sort of come down through the light side of the quilt. So I really think about um, lights and darks and midtones and like sort of how, you know, the, the composition in, you know, the composition in, in paintings is the sort of same way I compose a lot of my quilt works. So there's a whole lot of crossover there. That's so interesting. I've never, as a painter myself, I've never um, thought of quilts as having a light source. Um, I, you know, you think of them as so two-dimensional in some ways. I mean, three-dimensional in the sense that you can touch them, but flat, right? Um, so that is fascinating to me. Yeah, one of my main goals, yeah, one of my main goals in every quilt I make is to have, manipulate the fabric in some way and layer it in some way so that every quilt has what looks to be an internal light source. Like it, it is glowing sort of from within. It has lit itself. And um, that's directly from paintings. So like, and those are realistic paintings, you know. And um, so, yeah, that's, a, that's sort of a daily goal of mine. I'm Melody Moody Thordis, and you're listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour podcast. You can also hear the show on MPB Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5 p.m. To hear all our conversations with creative Mississippians, be sure to subscribe to the Mississippi Arts Hour podcast on your favorite podcasting app. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. We are back with the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Melody Moody Thordis, Director of Grants at the Mississippi Arts Commission. On today's show, we're talking about the Mississippi Invitational, and I'm here with Coulter Fussell, a quilter and textile artist who was chosen as the winner of the Jane Crater Hyatt Artist Fellowship as part of the Mississippi Museum of Arts Biennial Invitational. Going back to, um, you know, being raised by a... Uh, art museum curator and, and a quilter, I, you know, you've spoken before about 
kind of leaving home, you know, being in college and then kind of exploring quilting on your own. So I'm just curious, did you, um, were you surprised that you came back to it in your own way? Or do you think that you kind of started thinking about, like you said, by osmosis, how you might do it differently? Yeah, well, that's a really good question. And me and my mom have talked about this before. Um, you know, it's so funny. About six or seven, maybe eight years ago, I started working in textiles exclusively. Uh, I quit painting, uh, you know, in the traditional sense and moved totally to textiles. And in the beginning, I was like, oh, this is so crazy. I can't believe that, like, I'm quilting, you know, after all this. And um, But then, I'm, you know, as I look back at my painting work from the very beginning, I was like, painting dresses uh I was making whole huge oil paintings of people only to like really focus on the pattern on whatever you know dress she was wearing or whatever I was um using actual pieces of fabric in those paintings you know and in like collage works and everything the whole time I was painting I was collecting fabric and I wasn't making quilts and so when I started to turn to making quilts I had all this fabric already collected to work with so it was as if the signs in the process had been there the entire time I just didn't recognize it until way later until I looked back and I was like oh wow I've been really working with textiles this whole time I just wasn't so deliberate about it um I'm curious and we talked about this a little bit already but as you think about your next pieces are there themes are there themes that you're exploring now um or um boundaries that you're trying to push what it what is kind of the next thing on your mind as you are creating new work yeah so uh what I'm really sort of leaning toward now well I've got several different themes I'm sort of going toward but all in a whole um, what I'm sort of going toward now is quilts. Uh, they're turning really sculptural in um, the quilts I'm making. And so, you know, I'm really sort of exploring, like, how are quilts like sculpture? Well, they're like sculpture in almost every way possible, you know. They, uh, they have fronts, backs, middles. They use all these different materials in different ways. They bend, they fold, they move, they wrap around you there's almost not a way that a quilt isn't a sculpture. And um, so I'm really starting to push the boundaries there in that like, you know, the quilts are becoming actual standalone pieces of hand-sewn sculpture. And so I imagine that'll be sort of the next um, big, you know, big thing I do in terms of like the structure of the work. Uh, as far as themes, uh, I'm really right now... Um, uh, leaning toward a lot of like uh, themes about force and power and control. Uh, I, I use a lot of like uh, war imagery lately from, I grew up in Columbus, Georgia, which is uh, Fort Benning. And um, so I grew up with a whole lot of that imagery um, just from around town and stuff. And uh, there's sort of like a conflicted view and feeling I have about all that. Like in a lot of ways, it's very nostalgic for me, but then at the same time, like I know what it's about, you know, it's, it's war. And so, uh, you know, sort of address a lot of themes of power and force. Well, you, um, you were awarded the Jane Hyatt Crater Fellowship as part of the Mississippi Invitational at the Museum of Art. And with that um, comes a prize that 
the winner is allowed to spend in different ways to further their craft. And I'm just curious, um, I know it's new, but if you had any thoughts and plans um, in mind with what you might do um, with this fellowship. Yeah, well, like I have a project that I've specifically put forth to try to get this fellowship. (laughs) Um, I'm going to hopefully uh or start on a series of quilts uh four or five quilts that are like sculptural long-term projects um where each quilt is viewed through a different light spectrum and that um reveals some sort of like inner workings or inner narrative that you can't otherwise see with just your normal eye so it would be like some sort of like um you know, infrared technology or, you know, 3D uh, shadow casting even. And um, yeah, so I'm going to do four or five quilts that each use a different like spectrum so that you can see uh, a story inside the quilt. You're listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Think Radio, where each week we talk to a musician, artist, author, or other creative working across the South. I'm your host, Melody Moody Thordis, Director of Grants at the Mississippi Arts Commission. And on today's show, I'm speaking with Danielle Burns Wilson, the this year's curator for the Mississippi Invitational held at the Museum of Art in downtown Jackson. Danielle, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Melody, for having me. Course. Well, um, if you could just uh, give our listeners a few sentences overview of of who you are um, and and what you do, and then we'll kind of dive a little deeper into the work of curation and this year's Invitational. Sure. So I um, am from Houston, Texas, born and raised, and I currently serve as the curator and art director at Project Row Houses. I have been in the art world or as an art professional for almost 20 years. Um, Began at the University Museum at Texas Southern University and uh, went on to graduate school at CUNY at Berkeley College. Um, I was a Romare Bearden Fellow at the St. Louis Art Museum and also had another uh, fellowship the Mickey Leland International Enhancement Fellow, and um, I was served as curator of uh, the Houston Public Library for a number of years. And um, I have, you know, how did I come to this career? I think I always loved art. My mom's an artist, so growing up, I would see her drawing and try to figure out what she was drawing. She's an abstract artist. And I uh, didn't know that you could actually, you know, art could not, I didn't know that art could be a career because I tried my hand at artists. Um, Photography was my medium and I was horrible, but I also learned that I could write very well. Um, So that's how I kind of got into the field of art. So, Danielle, tell me about um, how your interest in art brought you to the career as a curator. It, it seems like the, the kind of career that people might not necessarily know about or think about that are interested in art. So I'm curious how you were brought to that. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I am a kid of the 80s and 90s, and I guess the first time I ever heard the word curator 
was on a different world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I just remember Whitley Gilbert. Um, and I thought that that was so interesting because I, I had a love for art. I was like the kid in high school that senior skip day, I didn't go to the beach. I went to the museum. Um, but I didn't know exactly what I could do with art. And it wasn't really until I met Dr. Alvia Wardlaw, who at the time, um, and this was the early 2000s, she was a curator of modern and contemporary art at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston in Houston, Texas, and also a professor and director at the University Museum at Texas Southern University. And it's then that um, I actually started to explore what it was, what it would be like to go into the field of art. I was already working actually at the University Museum and uh, as a, a development coordinator. So I was writing grants for them. And what I did was um, went back to school, got my post in art history, and then went on to graduate school. Um, but I guess that interest was really peaked working at the University Museum because I was on the cure, I was on the, excuse me, administrative side of things. But for every exhibition that came through, I was always following Alvia. I was asking her questions. I was reading, I was writing. I was just trying to figure it all out. Um, Because you're right, it is a career that oftentimes um, we don't know about. It seems like something that people, um, yeah, either haven't quite heard of or or have heard of and don't quite understand. Um, You know, and it's, it's the kind of career that like, I would love more people to consider and I Absolutely. feel like educating people about what a curator does, um, you know, can, can help put it more in a reality based, um, thought. So with that thought, can you kind of walk me through, I know no day is typical, but kind of walk me through what a curator would do in, in different instances. Sure. So you're 100% correct, though. No day is ever the same. But as a curator, um, what you do is organize exhibitions. And that's kind of, you know, the broader sense of it. I mean, there are curators are several different types of museums. Um, You know, you have history, you have science, but uh, specifically art. And as an art curator, What you're doing is as you're trying to organize exhibitions, you're thinking about, you know, working with um, artists, typically contemporary artists. Sometimes you will develop exhibitions that involve, you know, artists that are no longer with us. But it's really about, again, organizing, right? So coming up with themes or some sort of chronological way of telling a story. and I mean, the ideas of, of exhibitions come from so many things. Um, curators are inspired by, you know, movements of um, art movements. You're inspired by books or social justice practices. I mean, there's so many things um, that that can bring about an idea for an exhibition or, you know, even in regard to the Mississippi Museum of Art Invitational, you know, just allowing artists to come together or a curator to come together, um, find artists uh, and, you know, 
bring a show together that has some cohesion, I guess you should say. Um, and that's what it is. It's about organizing a cohesive exhibition. Hi, I'm Melody Moody Thordis, and you're listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour podcast. You can also hear the show on MPB Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5 p.m. To hear all our conversations with creative Mississippians, be sure to subscribe to the Mississippi Arts Hour podcast on your favorite podcasting app. Hi, I'm Walt Grayson. You can now listen to the wild, weird, and wonderful stories of Mississippi with Mile Marker. We are a Yucca Drive-In Theater. We're the last operating drive-in in the state of Mississippi. Join me as we hit the roads of Mississippi on Mile Marker. Freaked me out that you could come and drive your car and park and watch the movie outside. You can listen by going to mpbonline.org radio or by using your favorite podcasting app, Mile Marker, a Mississippi Roads podcast. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. We are back with the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, we're talking about the Mississippi Invitational, a showcase of 42 visual artists living and working across the state. This year's works were selected by our guest today, curator Danielle Burns-Wilson. So the Mississippi Invitational, um, you know, these are 42 artists who end up in this invitational um, people who are listening. You can view this at the uh, museum of art from August 14th to November 7th. I really encourage you to do so because the depth and breadth of these are these 42 artists um, is, is wide. And I'm curious as you put together this show, um, did you find artists? Did they all apply and what kind of uh, rule or theme did you find yourself coming back to as you curated this particular show? Sure. So the artist, uh, this is biennial every other year, artists apply to participate in the Mississippi Invitational. And I can't recall how many artists applied this year, but I know that I looked at 643 works of art. Um, and through that, um, what I did was I selected a number of artists to uh, have studio visits with. And I think that it's important to know that, I mean, this uh, invitational, uh, it actually has the largest number of artists represented um, since the museum's, um, since the museum launched the invitational in 1997, but also uh, typically what happens um, is curators uh, visit uh, Mississippi and they get to go, you know, sometimes for weeks and days and they go all throughout the state doing um, studio visits. But because of COVID and what was going on, um, I actually had all my studio visits over Zoom, um, which was, uh, you know, I think through being a curator, uh, curators always kind of have their own curatorial practice. And um, this kind of went totally against the grain of my <laughs> curatorial practice. Because really from the beginning, I've always understood my curatorial practice to be highly collaborative with artists. So I think artists have unique perspectives and 
I love to talk to them. So studio visits are kind of like I always say a first date, you know, this is when I get to interact with them. Um, you know, I get to tell them how I understand their work, sometimes maybe how I don't. So all of this that typically happens in person had to happen over Zoom, um, which was quite an experience. Um, but what was so interesting about this experience is because we were in the middle of COVID and um, you know, I was doing Zoom visits at home, I think what it ultimately did was it made me realize that, or, or what happened really was my personal life and my professional life kind of merged. It was hard to be super professional when my four-year-old was running in the room and, you know, telling people hi and making silly faces, you know? Um, but I mean, I literally laughed, I cried, I comforted, you know, through those visits. And as a curator, I, I can't ever say I had those experiences. Um, so it was really a, although, um, you know, what I thought was going to be, uh, you know, I, I didn't think I was gonna enjoy, I enjoyed immensely. Um, and then, through the selection, um, after looking at all these works, I selected 42 artists all throughout the state of Mississippi. What are some of the pieces from this year's Invitational that specifically stuck out to you or others that you would want to just draw the public's attention to? Sure. So I, I think this Invitational um, is unique in that typically when a guest curator comes in, you're just kind of for an invitational, you're just looking at artwork and you select the best art that you see, you know. But I think that with this, it was a little different because I wanted to go in and I really wanted this exhibition to reflect uh, the time in which we were in, and that was COVID. Um, I thought that it was a, a great platform to be able to do that. And so what I did was I started to think about themes that really represent um, or represented to me um, through the artwork that I was seeing. Um, and those themes were resilience, reckoning, and reflection. So what you'll see in this exhibition are these three themes and works that kind of fall within those. And Resilience, um, there's some great work by Ashley Coleman, and she really captures the honesty um, of motherhood and children during this time. And I think that what's so important is like children are so resistant. And I think that we learn that even more during that time, during this time. I mean, they're, they're curious, they're brave, they trust their instincts. Um, and typically when we see, uh, photographs of mothers, they're often staged. And what Ashley Coleman does is really her works dispel this notion of, um, you know, a perfect docile child, you know, or kids are like, you know, running up and picking up, you know, dead uh, birds and kicking through glass and, you know, spilling uh, blueberries on the floor. It's just uh, amazing uh, work. And then also um, Reckoning, uh, the work of Alexis uh, Griggs will be seen. And 
I think that uh, we know that uh, America's had its most recent reckoning with racism. Um, and I really think that, you know, it's time for us to reimagine and reinvent and hopefully do things differently. And Ashley Griggs' work, her um, is it's somewhat fused with Afrofuturism, which is really this ideology um, that addresses themes and concerns around uh, the African diaspora and looking about looking forward to really thrive in the future. So her her works um, really open up that dialogue um, and it explores Black lived experiences and how you can create your own narrative around um, both current realities and future. Uh, and then reflection. Um, the work of painter and photographer uh, Winston Ramsey. Um, and he has an amazing large scale portrait of his grandmother and it's called The Day My Grandmother Became a Widow. And Ramsey has taken a photograph of his grandmother just hours after she lost her husband. And what this work really invokes is a sense that in times of tragedy, we're all the same. Um, so those are some of the works. Also, uh, Coulter Fussell's work, Home, it really invites us um, in a different type of reflection. And it's made entirely by donated fabrics. She is a quilter. Um, and, you know, the word home, it just means so many things to so many people. And, you know, safety, security, stability. And I think during COVID, I mean, we all had these questions about what is home. Um, so I think those are some of the great highlights. I mean, there's more. There's definitely more. Oh, gosh, I could talk about... Um, Lawson King's work, um, it, it, he uses balloons as symbols and they teach us uh, the power of relinquishing control of things um, and also just, you know, chasing something fascinating and in a beautiful object. So I could go on, but yeah. Well, with 42 <laughs> artists, as I said, people yeah. listening need to go check it out because these are just some of the highlights, some of the artists um, that we're talking about here. And I encourage you to, again, see, go, go and see, go and look at the Museum of Art um, for this invitational. It's open till November 7th, uh, 2021. And, and, and look at how these different 42 artists speak to you and the different types um, of art. So, um, Danielle, you mentioned your work with the Project Row Houses, um, and I'm just interested to ask you a little bit about that. Um, I'm wondering first if um, part of the connection to the Museum of Art is uh, Ryan Dennis, who um, was also at Project Row Houses, and then I'm also curious for you to tell our audiences a little bit about what that is. Sure. So Ryan Dennis uh, was the former curator at uh, Project Row Houses and now is the curator at the Mississippi Museum of Art. And there's absolutely a connection. Um, what's funny about that is I actually was not the curator um, <laughs> when uh, we were first putting this show together. Um, this is a very recent role. Um, I've only been there a month. Um, 
yeah. So, but not new to row houses. Um, like I mentioned before, I'm from Houston, Texas, and row houses was established in 1993 as by seven um, artists who also looked at themselves as activists. Um, looking at the works of Yosef Boys, who believed in a social sculpture, which means, you know, art can be anything and anywhere and art can be activist, but also looking at the works of John Biggers, who was a painter who started the uh, Texas Southern University Art Museum, but also looked at the aesthetic of Africa and really thinking about African-American culture and how the two are one and the same. So uh, row houses, uh, it's a, it's actually a um, vernacular. So it's a, a architecture vernacular. Um, for those who aren't familiar with row houses, um, it's basically this house. And um, the idea is, if you open the front door and you open the back door, you can shoot a, a, a gun through it, and it could go straight through the house. So for that to be said, like the the you know, the the doors function basically um, one way and then the house is on like one side of the, the, the other side of the, the doors. But that architecture can be seen in West Africa and it was used utilitarian because you can open up two doors and what it does is it ventilates the house, right? So in Third Ward, Texas, which is a, a black community in, in Houston, um, row houses are a very, are iconic to the area. And um, in 1993, like I said, seven artists got together and they saw these dilapidated houses and decided that they wanted to create um, art houses. They didn't think that artists were getting the um, attention that they needed to at other spaces, art spaces. Um, so they created their own and they were thinking about neighborhood and community and having that in mind, right? So it wasn't about, you know, you leaving your, your neighborhood or community to, to, to see artwork. It was more about bringing the artwork to you. And I mean, now we're looking at 28 years later and we really have built a social justice or like we like to call a social sculpture model, which is, you know, art can be in everything. Um, and looking at artists who are also activists. So we have what are called rounds that happen twice a year. Um, Ryan did a wonderful job of bringing those rounds together, um, oftentimes thematically, uh, thinking about larger issues or tackling larger issues uh, in the world, like, um, you know, Black Lives Matter, um, gentrification, um, uh, social economic empowerment, uh, so many things. And what we do is we allow um, seven artists to come in and respond to these themes. And they all have one row house uh, and they become installations. Uh, and it's a really creative way for artists to approach artwork. Um, oftentimes it takes them out of their own practices to really reimagine what it is to, you know, to to what it is to do with these houses, you know? I mean, it's kind of like giving a, a, a painter a canvas, but I mean, it's a whole house, right? So what do you do with it? How do you respond? But it's great to see how um, artists are really up for the challenge. And um, we have some really great artists that have come through row houses and we continue to. And now 
we have, you know, our, our goal is really to become that gold standard for social sculpture. And now we even have um, um, areas in, um, what is it, Athens, Greece, and in, in Dallas, Texas, that have modeled themselves after Project Row Houses. Wow, that's so inspiring and so <laughs> just nice to hear about that, you know, just putting these artists in a, in a sense of place and um, yeah. and connecting it to, to, to people and new, I mean, it, new ideas. And it sounds like it really is rooted in history and yet looking um, both backwards and forwards um, to oh, the future. Absolutely. It absolutely. just sounds amazing. I'm so glad to hear that you are in that role. And I cannot wait to hear um, more about what's to come. Um, so yeah. as we wrap up our conversation today, I just want to ask you, and you've touched on this, but I want to ask you what you think the arts are helping us learn or teaching us during these unprecedented times that we're living through? You know, I think that art always happens within a historical context and with condition, whether artists or other artists or art um, really decides to respond to that condition or not, you know, and um, I feel like admittedly, you know, during this time, I mean, things have just changed. Um, the way in which artists process things, you know, um, the way in which um, we respond to things, but I believe that art should, should be incorporated and respond to these like stories and not mask them. And, you know, I, I selected these works because I think that they gave a great balance to media and process and perspective. And I think that art has a way of bringing people together. I think that, you know, in these times, especially, um, we need art to convey human needs. We need it to reimagine our future and it needs to really liberate thought. So um, that's what I hope this, this art is bringing. Um, to us right now through the Invitational. Thanks for listening to this MPB Think Radio podcast. MPB depends on support from listeners, so if you can, please contribute today at mpbonline.org. Hi, I'm Ryder Taff, Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advisory and co-host of Money Talks. Each week, we take your personal finance questions and tell you about a money topic we hope you find helpful. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart devices podcasting platform.